Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Stephen W. Wilhelm. He's the Kenneth and Blair Mossman Professor of Microbiology at uh, University of Tennessee. Uh, He's also part of the Aquatic Microbial Ecology Research Group in the Department of Microbiology. And we're going to talk about cyanobacteria and their blooms and what that does to uh, to you know the whole environment around them. So, Steve, thanks for coming. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, for people that don't know, what what are cyanobacteria? Where are they, and what role do they have in the environment? Sure. So, cyanobacteria, um, or some people may know them, blue green algae, are single cell bacteria that can carry out photosynthesis in a manner analogous to higher plants. So, they fix carbon. Uh, from carbon dioxide into biomass and grow. They are abundant in every aquatic system around the world, and they're, they're actually probably some of the most abundant organisms on the planet. Huh. And so they photosynthesize uh, you know, carbon. Um, what, who eats the uh, cyanobacteria, or where does it go from there once they've done the photosynthesis? What's the yeah. next layer up in the, in the chain? So just like small single-cell algae, we would think of like diatoms and small eukaryotes, uh, in many cases, these are, are grazed on by small invertebrates. Uh, in other cases, they're caught up in filter feeding. Uh, in part, it depends on the cyanobacteria in question, cyanobacterium in question. And there's a really broad spectrum of these. Some are more palatable than others. Uh, and then some are killed by viruses in these systems as well. Is the main, um, so who's the main predator of the cyanobacteria? And what's, who benefits from the, uh, the results of their photosynthesis Mostly. Well, I, I would have to say we benefit a lot from the results of photosynthesis. If uh, we estimate that cyanobacteria are carrying out as much as a quarter of the photosynthesis on the planet, so one in four breaths that we take may be the result of cyanobacterial photosynthesis. Uh, in, in terms of their main predator, if we look at cyanobacteria in the oceans, uh, their main predator could possibly be viruses. We think that half the mortality in the oceans. Uh, of cyanobacteria is due to viruses. We don't, we don't have similar numbers for freshwaters. It's a little more complicated. We have different types of cyanobacteria. We know there are viruses there, but freshwater systems are often full of small invertebrate grazers, little protists and that that would consume them. Yeah, the, um, the oxygen that the uh, cyanobacteria make, they, uh, I guess the water they're in can only hold a very small amount of dissolved oxygen, so most of it goes into the air and is freed. That, that, that's right. And in fact, if we think back to the early Earth, uh, when there was no oxygen, the first oxygen that appeared probably came from an ancient cyanobacterium. So that oxygen accumulated over time, it reacted chemically with the Earth, but eventually it was freed up and built up the concentration of oxygen we have in the atmosphere today. And where do these, uh, these guys live? Like right on the surface or a few inches down or where is their zone? They live all over. They live up and down the water column uh, as long as there's light. They live um, and in the oceans that can be up to 120 to 200 meters deep. 
in freshwater systems, it depends on the lake in question. Uh, it could be 20 to 30 meters deep. Uh, you may be most familiar with them and some of the thick scums they can form on the surface when we have an algal bloom, when they get out of control, then they'll often live right at the surface forming really thick green mats. Do they, um, the oxygen they create, do they, you know, has it been observed that they're like micro bubbles, you know, in the top, I don't know, 50 or 100 meters in the ocean because of them? Yeah, so not in the ocean per se, but we have seen it in the lab where we've had experiments going on. And again, especially with some of these freshwater cyanobacteria where they're sitting under the perfect conditions. They have lots of light, lots of nutrients. And you will actually start to see bubbles potentially forming in clumps of cyanobacteria. It's pretty spectacular when it happens. Yeah, I would think they would have a big influence on the chemistry of, you know, of any body of water they're in. You know, it would be very different above them and below them because of the presence of this dissolved oxygen and these bubbles. Maybe there's all kinds of crazy reactions going on inside the bubbles, et cetera. Yeah, you're, a- you're absolutely right. Where they maybe have a bigger impact is when they die because they go from being oxygen producers to food for organisms that consume oxygen like heterotrophic bacteria. So many of our dead zones, for example, in the Laurentian Great Lakes, Lake Erie has a massive dead zone that forms in the summer. We think a lot of that is to, due to cyanobacteria dying off, their carbon being transported down in the lake, and then bacteria consuming these cyanobacteria and using up oxygen at the same time. That forms what we colloquially, colloquially call a dead zone. Huh. So um, are most of these cyanobacteria eaten while they're alive, or are they eaten when they're dead, or just what, you know, the, what eats them when they're dead is different than what eats them when they're alive? Yeah, when they're dead, they're probably mostly just fall apart and, and break down. When they're alive, um, again, some of the small ones are eaten by invertebrate grazers, uh, but a lot of them are very unpalatable. Some of them, organisms will go out of their way to avoid eating. So one we study a lot, microcystis, uh, it's been shown that uh, some things like zebra mussels will actually spit them back out if they consume them. Uh, they're basically the equivalent of the pizza box of the, uh, of the lake system. There's a lot of material there that just not very uh, nutritious and hard to consume. What about fish, though? I mean, they're small enough. I mean, are they small enough where a fish, they would pass through and over a fish's gills continuously because there's so many and they're so small? So that's, that's a really great question. We will see a lot of them go into fish and pass over the gills. In fact, a few years ago, working with a colleague, Ted Henry, we actually made videos of that because we were not convinced that was happening. But we had a student show that if fish take in some of these cyanobacteria, they can actually escape out through the gills. At the same time, they can also end up in the stomach content. And with certain cyanobacteria, this becomes a problem because many of them make secondary metabolites that turn out to be toxic. Huh. Yeah, it's weird. They're just everywhere. So I'm just imagining the places that they'll go and what they'll do. So, so um, when they form blooms, is it man-made reasons or is there a natural cycling where they do bloom and then diminish? Uh, I think it's a combination of both things. There are some environments that are just perfect for phototrophs to do very well. But the blooms that we're really concerned with nowadays, blooms we've heard about Lake Okeechobee, uh, Lake Erie, uh, Grand Lake St. Mary's in Ohio, blooms out in Oregon, we think that they're, for the most part, driven by human activity, by humans pumping nutrients into the environment, which nitrogen and phosphorus, that, that acts as food for algae. You pump in more nutrients, you get more algae. So uh, when there's an abundance of nutrients, they'll bloom, and then what happens once they get to a certain number, and they, I guess they overwhelm their systems that are around them and other creatures, and 
Hey, what are, yeah. what's all the fallout? What happens? Yeah, they, they really fundamentally change the system they're in. They uh, can overwhelm uh, the other organisms that are there. They can push out algae that may be better fish food. Uh, as I mentioned, they produce uh, compounds like microcystin, which was originally known as fast death factor. Um, its, its name really tells you what it can do, and fish will have to avoid that or not consume it. Uh, they can die off then these blooms, and when they die off, they create these giant dead zones. So they produce taste and odor compounds, compounds that make the water smell terrible and taste terrible. And when these, uh, when their toxins get in drinking water supplies, it can become harmful to humans. And there are a couple cases where we've had to shut off water supplies in order to protect the population. When they die, do they float or do they sink? Yeah, when they die, they generally sink. Microcystis in particular, the main one people are worried about these days, has the ability to control its own place in the water column. It can be buoyant, so it can float. And if it doesn't have enough light, it can float more to move up in the water column to get more light. If it has too much light or maybe not enough nutrient, it will sink back down in the water column to where there's less light and more nutrients. So they can do that when they're living. When they're dead for the most part, we think they generally end up sinking out. Some of them just break open and fall apart, but others will sink out to the bottom. Oh, interesting. Um, do they form, uh, I don't know, deterministic geometric shapes when they're blooming and when they're dying? Do they form like a cone or a, you know, like, is there any learning to be done there? Like, can you tell the shape of, of death when they die in mass or when they bloom? Well, that's a really cool question. Uh, you can see colors. So, for example, because these are phototrophs, they contain chlorophyll. And when they start to perhaps run out of nutrients, which is sort of a first stage of bloom termination at some point, they'll turn chlorotic, they'll turn yellow. And we've seen this in places in China and other places. What's fascinating about that is we were actually in China a couple years ago, and there was a giant bloom of microcystis. There's a, a lake in China called Taihu. Uh, it's very famous amongst limnologists for being one of these lakes that's heavily impacted. And the bloom had gone bright yellow. A storm blew in, mixed up all the sediments, brought nutrients to the surface. And two days later, the cells had gone back to green because they had this fresh infusion of food. Yeah, that's weird. What do you do, you know, once uh, a bloom starts, if you keep feeding the bloom, the bloom, I'm sure, grows and gets worse. If you stop feeding the bloom, then things die and cause another problem. So what do you do? It's like you're a hostage. Right. <laughs> it is a bit of a problem. Well, I think we want to prevent the blooms from starting in the first place. And if you keep feeding the bloom, even though it would die off and um, cause some issues there, it at least would not get bigger. One of the problems we're having, though, is that what feeds the bloom are nutrients that drive food production, uh, uh, nutrient fertilizers we may see used in golf courses, et cetera, and so forth. And we need nutrients in the environment because we use it to generate our own food. And in order to probably cut these nutrients off, uh, I think it would be possible to do it, but it would take some money and it would take some political will. And right now, there doesn't seem to be the economic or political will to sort of stop this nutrient pollution going into these systems. So we're really at an impasse. Uh, we have laws in place to try to reduce nutrient loads. Uh, hopefully some of those will take hold. But yeah, as long as we keep dumping nutrients and these blooms are going to keep occurring. Um, and, and there's more than just drinking water and oxygen at stake here. Uh, bloom events will shut down beaches. That costs small communities a lot of money. If you're a small town, maybe on the coast of Lake Erie, and much of your income 
uh, comes from people coming to the beaches in the summer, having giant algal blooms there is not a great way to uh, attract tourists. Have, have you been able to compare the death state of, um, of a cyanobacteria that was killed by phage versus one that was uh, you know, starved to death? We have not done that specific comparison yet. Uh, people really started looking closely at viruses or phage of microcystis about five or six years ago. And my lab is actually one that does that. Um, and so we've become interested in just determining what the role of phage may be in this process. Uh, one of the side interests of that is that when a phage kills a cell, it tends to kind of break it open and, and rip it apart. Uh, and, and the toxin that microcystis makes is generally maintained inside the cell until the cell dies. So death by phage means this toxin is getting out into the environment. That becomes a complication for humans because primary water treatment in many places in, in large cities along uh, these water bodies that are affected could remove the toxin if it was in the cell um, or could remove the toxin if it was free and dissolved in the water column, but the approaches are different. So right now, one of the things we're trying to understand is when do you get these phage events moving the toxin from the particulate or living pool into this free-floating dead pool of materials? I wonder if you can introduce like a flocculent. I mean, I, I guess most of these bodies of water are so huge, I don't know what you can do, but you know, I wonder if you could flock together the, uh, the cyanobacteria and then cause them to drop out of the column. And maybe that would help. I don't know. And people have tried that with different clays before where they can go out, spray clay into the water. The material flocculates and settles down to the bottom. But that's really just a Band-Aid solution because it cleans things up for a day or two. And then a few cells escape. They get back into the water column. There's no competition. There's lots of nutrients and light and they just take off and your bloom returns. So often the flocculation approaches don't work very well. You'd have to keep applying them over and over and over, and that could get expensive quickly. And then when they're, uh, when they're blooming, are they forming like a biofilm? Do they form a different structure? Do they have different properties of metabolites than when they're free-floating? Yeah, so when these guys bloom, and, and remember the individual cells are only a couple microns in size, they'll often form colonies. So when we study them in the lab, they tend to... Um, form single cell physiologies. And we see those in nature, or in nature as well, but sometimes we'll see them in nature where they'll form colonies of hundreds of individual cells. And scientists are really interested in this because we think that the uh, colony formation is a key to their survival and a key to their ecology. These colonies, when they're really big and some of the most robust ones, you can see with the naked eye when you look at the water. So that's it's usually pretty impressive to see a bloom like that. Yeah, I wonder if there's a specific, uh, you can take advantage of that specific biology you know, when they're in that state. Yeah, we're working with colleagues in China to try to understand what causes them to, um, to form colonies versus single cell. Um, because when they form colonies, obviously they're all together in a bigger mass, and it might be easier to remove them from the water that way. Hmm, interesting. So what, um, I don't know, any other, other promising ways to, uh, to stop the blooms once they happen and return the lakes and bodies of water back to normal? Well, I think that what we're trying to understand right now is what the major drivers are. And for the last 50 years, everyone has sort of talked about nutrients. And I've mentioned that a lot. We talk about nitrogen and phosphorus. But what we found interesting is that the nutrients really only control how much of an organism is there, not what type of organism 
appears. So it's possible that this same amount of nutrients could give us diatoms, which are great food for small invertebrates that lead to fish. So one thing we're trying to understand right now is why we get cyanobacteria or microcystis in the system as opposed to getting more beneficial algae. And we think that this uh, approach is going to bear some fruit because when we can start to understand why microcystis is doing so well, maybe we can alter things a little bit to stop it from doing so well. So examples of things that make them do well, for example, are warmer waters. Cyanobacteria grows much better uh, in warmer waters than the diatoms it competes with. So climate change and increasing temperatures, even just a degree or two, can really shift the balance in the community. So understanding that has become really important. As well, when they compete for things like uh, different types of nutrients, about 25 years ago, farmers switched from ammonium nitrate as a fertilizer to urea as a fertilizer. And we think that switch, which happens to coincide with when we started to see bloom issues, um, may be an indicator of uh, some advantage microcystis has versus other organisms, uh, just switching the type of nitrate getting. So there's a lot of different questions out there, a lot of different approaches. When I talk to students about this, I commonly say, well, it's complicated and it's much more complicated than we would like it to be. Yeah, biological systems are very complicated and they can defend themselves and it's really tough. Um, uh, is there any uh, insights when you get dead zones? Are they just monolithic or are they pockets of dead zones? And is there any, I, I don't know, is there any intervention or you know, if you have a large dead zone that has, that's very big, is that different from little small ones that have emerged? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question because dead zones occur all around the world. There's dead zones that form in the Gulf of Mexico, dead zones that form in the ocean, dead zones that form in large lakes, systems around the world. And dead zones, as I mentioned, are really caused by an input of um, a lot of carbon that becomes food for bacteria that consume the oxygen. In the Great Lakes, we know that dead zones date back to the 1930s. And it's become pretty clear that the dead zones have been larger um, in more recent years, in the last 20 years. Why we care about dead zones is that they can really mess with fish habitat. They can uh, impair nurseries, they can impair breeding grounds, they can impair benthic organisms that can be food or part of the food web. So one thing we know about dead zones is that they're often really just driven by carbon load. That carbon load can be terrestrial runoff. It can be large blooms of algae dying off. So much of this is linked together. So understanding how our role in driving eutrophication or the dumping of nutrients into systems that creates more primary productivity that leads to more fixed carbon, that leads to more respiration in the bottom, uh, everything is kind of tied together. What's happening in the, I mean, this may be a stupid question. What, what, what's in a dead zone? Are even the cyanobacteria gone? There's nothing? What's there? <laughs> So no, there's actually lots of stuff there. And I have a, a colleague um, who was at Kent State that, that once corrected me and he said, you shouldn't call these dead zones, you should call them too alive zones. And they're too alive because the bacteria are going crazy. It's a smorgasbord for them. They're getting all sorts of carbon and all sorts of food. So they're just growing like crazy. And that's why they consume all this oxygen. Now there are degrees of dead, I guess you could say, or degrees of oxygen availability, where you can have oxygen concentrations drop, but not all the way to zero. And some organisms can tolerate that um, and, and can move in and out of there. At the same time, there are sessile organisms that are sort of just stuck in a location. And so they're probably doing their best to tolerate 
uh, oxygen as it comes and goes or as it's available in these systems as well. And you can maybe think of clams or something. You can't really move too far. So uh, I, I guess the take-home message for the dead zones is that they're just not what we would typically think of as a healthy ecosystem. What about um, using the, the huge abundance of cyanobacteria for a job, you know, to make <laughs> oxygen or to use this food or something, you know, so you can get some use yeah, out of it. Maybe you can, uh, you know, a lake that you know is going to have blooms a bunch of times. What can you hook up to the lake and get some resource that, that would yeah. be beneficial? You are, you are right on track with many of the scientists and engineers over the last 20 years. And I've been involved with projects that do this, but really asking a question, how can we make a uh, something out of the cyanobacteria where we can have some economic recovery that, that covers the cost of the cleanup? And there are efforts out there to make machines that move through the water and consume the cyanobacteria and turn it into fuel. And you would turn it into fuel that would power that machine so that it wouldn't cost you anything to run it. Uh, there are people in the UK working on this, people in China and North America working on this. No one has been really successful yet uh, because of the costs. Uh, there are ways to go through and clean up these cyanobacterial blooms, but just like the clay flocculation, they return a few days later and it becomes very expensive over time. But if somebody could come up with um, that end product that had economic value, uh, that you could then generate funds to pay for the harvesting of the microcystis, uh, then we might be on to something. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if, yeah, if you could just, you know, start sucking up water into, uh, you know, a gigantic pump and pump it into a system where you can, again, use it to sequester carbon and mass. Maybe it's coupled with, uh, you know, a machine that does that. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, we've, the, the, these organisms make all kinds of interesting chemicals, secondary metabolites. And so we have sat out there before in the middle of Lake Erie, which is a very large lake, and just pumped water into the ship, collected the algae out of it, and put the water back for hours and hours and hours. And it doesn't dent the bloom that's out there. Um, because as you're putting the water back in, you're dumping back in all the nutrients that drive growth without the algae there. So you're just really feeding the ones that were left behind. Well, is there any benefit to build up? Like you said, you were pumping and pumping for hours. If you keep concentrating and concentrating and concentrating the, you know, the algae, do you get anything beneficial um, that you could use? Yeah, that's, you know, that's what people keep trying to find. No one's come up with an economic product yet that really has uh, a lot of benefit to it. There's, there's constantly people talking about it, though. Okay. So what, what are you working on in particular? What, what kind of insights are you trying to generate into this whole problem? So my lab is sometimes a little defocused, and we work on a number of different things. We're a molecular biology lab, so we spend a lot of time sequencing DNA and RNA and asking questions about uh, why do we get different types of organisms under uh, different circumstances? What are the organisms doing? How is the environment influencing these organisms, and then how are these uh, organisms influencing the environment? So one example I could share with you is that uh, we've been pretty interested in how changing nitrogen types in uh, agriculture, changing from ammonia nitrate, which I mentioned the fertilizer, uh, to urea, um, we think has led to the change in the type of algae we see. Uh, microcystis loves growing on urea as a nitrogen source. It has some unique properties that lets it consume it more efficiently than other algae and make different end products within the cell than it would normally make off ammonia or nitrate or other nitrate. So that's something that's really of interest to us. And then another interest to us 
uh, is that many people in the lab work on viruses. So this natural synergy emerged between my algae people and my virus people trying to work on viruses that infect these harmful algal blooms. And so trying to understand um, are there natural controls that are occurring out there that we're not yet quite seeing. Has anyone tried to um, get a whole bunch of the bacteria and you know, put them in a container, pull out all the oxygen, and then let them die that way and see if they, be, they produce something very different instead of dying in an oxygen-rich environment? Um, so what I could say to that is that people have made measurements from dead zones where the algae have piled up, and I'm not aware of anything really interesting coming out of them in terms of compounds or metabolites. Uh, you would effectively be fermenting all those algae. Yeah, it's too bad they don't make something really beneficial if you, you know, you kill them in the absence of oxygen. That would be cool. I think if they made something really beneficial, this would be a very different conversation. We would be talking about lakes covered in corn or wheat or type product as opposed to lakes covered in a nasty cyanobacterium. Actually, well, that's an interesting idea. What if you had a floating um, aquaponics crop when a, you know, when a zone appears or just in general on a lake? Would that, uh, would that change at all the dynamics of it? So, so there have been efforts to generate floating islands that you would deploy into bodies of water where you would grow crops on the surface that would consume the nutrients out of the water column. And uh, I know they've been able to get things to grow, but I don't think they've ever been able to influence the algal bloom. I think it comes down to the fact that all of these efforts really only scratch the surface in terms of uh, dampening the nutrient load that comes in from the surrounding environment. And, and ultimately, we, we know the solution. If we stop dumping nutrients into our lakes and rivers, we won't have these problems. But again, it, it comes down to our inability to do that, it seems. Well, can you tell the entry point for um, where effluent, for instance, is coming in to a given body of water? There should be some directionality to it, you know, either in the resulting bloom or something where you can identify that, maybe preferentially try to halt it or stop it. Yeah, so... Um, Back in the 50s and 60s, there was lots of problems in the Great Lakes. Lake Erie was actually declared dead by the press. And then in 1972, they signed the, uh, the Water Quality Agreement between Canada and the United States. And they, after, they went, actually went after some of these individual strong sources, things we call point sources, where they could go in, identify specific points where nutrients were coming from, and they cleaned them up. Some of them were as simple as bad septic systems, some of them were small towns and cities that didn't have great wastewater treatment. And actually, by the time you could move forward into the 1980s, the lake really started to recover again. It's one of the great environmental success stories. We always seem to forget that, that at one point in history, we were able to go in, generate the will to stop dumping nutrients into the lake, and we decreased these cyanobacterial blooms we had in the 70s and 80s. If you flash forward then, about 10 years later, the bloom started to reoccur. We hadn't changed the amount of nutrients we've been putting in for the last 10 years, really. But now we're seeing a totally different type of organism appearing. And that's what we've been trying to understand. And uh, again, if we could reduce nutrients more, we would probably see it dampen down a bit. Um, But we're now dealing with a situation where it's not an individual or a couple of point sources but what we call non-point source, nutrients coming from a variety of locations, nothing in a really big concentration. Oh, how would you know this? Oh, because Environment Canada and the EPA have been surveying the lakes for 20 or 30 years. Um, There are constant surveys of nutrients out in the lake going on. 
Uh, again, thinking about the Laurentian Great Lakes all the time. And if you have a hot spot where you have a lot of nutrient being dumped in, um, you can measure that in the water. So in the case of Lake Erie, one of the biggest nutrient inputs is the Maumee River and everything in that watershed. And we can measure uh, concentrations of nutrients that are much higher when the river dumps into the lake uh, than when water moves up and through the lake. So we know the Maumee River is a source for nutrients, but it's draining one of the biggest watersheds in North America. So it'd be very difficult to engineer that. Mm, makes sense. Huh. Interesting. Well, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware exactly offhand, just thinking the shape of the lakes, but um, if you look at them concentrically from the center out towards the edges or the edges out towards the center, you know, what's observed? Do the blooms tend to happen at the edges first because that's where the nutrients enter? Or, uh, you know, and then what happens to the middle, et cetera? Yeah, um, algae are just like every other organism. They have the environments they prefer and they don't prefer. In the case of microcystis, typically speaking, we think of it as something that occurs more in nearshore waters. Uh, and then it gets more diluted out into the lake as you go until the blooms get really big. Now, Lake Erie is really interested because it actually sort of functions like three separate lakes that um, where Detroit is and Windsor in Canada, there's one basin there with some islands that separate it from a larger central basin um, that's a bit deeper and wider. And then there's a big sort of underwater shelf that separates that into the eastern basin on the Buffalo side. All three of those basins function very differently. differently. They're joined together and water exchanges between them, but we tend to see our algal blooms in the western basin, which is very shallow, much more coastal-like. It's close to the nutrient inputs. And then in many years, the blooms don't really progress beyond the western basin. Unfortunately, in the last five or six years, the blooms have been so big, they've pushed across the western basin and into the central basin. Well, very good. So what, what's the best way for people to learn more about uh, you know, the work that you're doing and, and get in contact with your lab? Yeah, so um, we have a webpage where we post everything. Uh, it's the Wilhelm Lab at the University of Tennessee, wilhelmlab.utk.edu. Uh, we run what I call an open access lab. We freely share all our information as soon as we have it. Uh, we put all our papers up there. My students are also heavily involved in outreach. So they're in local schools giving talks. Uh, I myself am a once in a while doing that as well. Um, and people can always just drop me an email. Well, very good, Steve. Thanks for coming. And uh, I know the problem you're working on is really difficult and multifaceted, but you know, it's interesting. So thanks for being right. here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.